0: In this episode of our podcast recorded at the Canadian Conference on Lymphoproliferative Diseases in Banff, Alberta, we discussed the results of the ALPINE trial with Dr. Matthew Davids. Dr. Davids is the Director of Clinical Research at the Division of Lymphoma at the Dana-Farber Institute and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. In this episode, Dr. Davids discusses the impact of the results of the ALPINE trial for clinical practice, given the achievement of superior progression free survival of Xanabrutinib over abrutinib for the treatment of relapsed or refractory chronic lymphocytic leukemia and small lymphocytic lymphoma. Hope you enjoy it. So, welcome, Dr. Davidson. Thanks so much for joining us from the Seacult meeting in Banff, Alberta to discuss the ALPINE trial and its impact on clinical practice.
1: Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, so to start, I just wanted to ask what was the rationale for the development of second-generation BTK inhibitors following the success of the first-generation molecule ibrutinib?
1: So ibrutinib was really a revolutionary molecule for patients with CLL. I was there in the early days and and really witnessed some patients who had had run out of other options. Uh, They were basically deciding uh, whether to go to hospice or not and went on uh, ibrutinib and really had a complete improvement, uh, getting back to their lives and, and really kind of saving them. And so, you know, it was very dramatic in those early days. And, and uh, you know at that time, we didn't have any long-term data with ibrutinib. We didn't have too much in the way of, of safety data beyond sort of the early phase studies. And so initially, it didn't necessarily even seem like we needed additional BTK inhibitors. I remember thinking that at the time. But, you know, as we gained more experience with ibrutinib, larger numbers of patients treated, longer follow-up, uh, we did start to see some issues arising, particularly around adverse events. And, you know, I think this ended up becoming, I think, the main rationale for developing a second generation of BT cannibers because we knew that ibrutinib had several off-target effects. And I think we came to realize that some of these off-target effects really were contributing to the AE profile that was being observed. Uh, for example, ibrutinib even targets EGFR. Uh, which is obviously not very helpful to to target that in a patient with CLL, and you can see skin toxicities and gastrointestinal side effects. So the idea with the second generation of BTK inhibitors was to develop molecules that were more specific for BTK, really with the hypothesis that um, that was really the key in terms of the efficacy for CLL, and that the off-target effects were not as, as relevant in terms of disease control. Of course, we didn't know that early on, and so I think there was even some hesitation initially with the more selective BTK inhibitors that maybe they would be less effective without those off-target effects.
0: Great, great. And so in terms of the safety concerns that in issue with ibrutinib, are there other safety concerns that came to light or what were the key
1: ones? Yeah, so in in terms of the, the key kind of specific concerns with ibrutinib, they really revolve around cardiovascular toxicities. Now, as we had more patients on the drug treated for longer periods of time, we certainly noted atrial fibrillation being relatively common. You know, early on, it seemed to only be maybe 5% of patients. But as we got more data, it seemed to be closer to 15% of patients developing atrial fibrillation on ibrutinib. Similarly, with hypertension, you know only a few percent maybe in the first year, but there was a cumulative risk there. And as we saw patients on ibrutinib three, four years or longer, there was a risk of late hypertension arising you know, later on in the drug. And upwards of a quarter or more of patients will develop hypertension on ibrutinib. The other thing that came up that was, of course, very concerning was ventricular dysrhythmias and even some cases of sudden cardiac death. Now, this is very rare on ibrutinib, but it is something that's been observed pretty consistently across ibrutinib trials where we see a few cases in these larger phase three trials. And so we do worry about uh, this risk for patients with ibrutinib, even though, again, it's very rare. In addition to those more serious risks, there are some more minor things that we have to deal with when patients are on ibrutinib. Uh, these include bruising, arthralgias, uh, and myalgias, these sorts of things. And so you know, some, from a sort of a quality of life perspective, especially for a continuous therapy, these are very important things that we need to think about for our patients.
0: That makes sense. And uh, that leads, I guess, nicely into asking about the ALPINE trial specifically. So, can you discuss a little bit the design of the ALPINE trial and about the primary outcome?
1: Sure. So, ALPINE was looking at a population of CLL patients who were relapsed and refractory. So, at least one prior line of therapy. And they had to have measurable disease by CAT scan. And the study excluded patients who had previously had a BTK in So, you couldn't have a nib and then come on to ALPINE. It excluded patients on warfarin, although other anticoagulants were allowed. And so the patients on alpine were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to continuous treatment with either xanabrutinib at the now approved dose of 160 milligrams BID, or to the control arm of ibrutinib at standard dosing of 420 milligrams daily. There were various stratification factors uh, to ensure a balance between the two arms. And you know basically the idea was both arms would be treated until disease progression or unacceptable toxicity and the primary endpoint of the study is overall response rate. So, this is uh, kind of an interesting choice for for a primary endpoint in in CLL. It actually did not include patients with a PR with lymphocytosis, who we certainly think are also benefiting from the drug. Uh, And in general, response rates are high in CLL, even in the relapse setting. And so, they also included some key secondary endpoints, which I think are probably even more relevant in clinical practice. And so, these included PFS, as well as the incidence of atrial fibrillation, and then there were a variety of other secondary endpoints. But we had sort of a, an elegant statistical plan with a hierarchy to check for ORR first, and then you know if significant difference, they could check for PFS and so forth, which I think became very important in terms of understanding the clinical implications of the study.
0: That makes sense. And so going into the efficacy results of the study, can you comment on those for overall
1: response and progression-free survival? So... Overall response, the primary endpoint was higher with xanabrutinib compared to ibrutinib. It was close to 86% uh, with xanabrutinib and about 76% with ibrutinib. So about a 10% absolute improvement in overall response rate. These were mostly partial responses as we anticipated, very few complete responders as, as we would expect with any BTK inhibitor. And because this endpoint was met through the independent review committee, then they went on to look at the PFS analysis, also by independent review committee. And so this was, I think, one of the more interesting and provocative results of the study, because they also found a significant improvement in progression-free survival in the patients treated with xanabrutinib compared to abrutinib. And this was even at a relatively short time frame. So looking at the 24-month landmark, about 80 percent of the patients who were starting on xanabrutinib were still progression-free, compared to 67 percent of the patients who started on abrutinib, which was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.65. And this advantage for xanabrutinib seemed to be pretty consistent across different subgroups, whether by age or uh, sex or other clinical features, also by different genetic features, uh, including high-risk patients. And to me, one of the more compelling results in the study was the small subset of patients who had high-risk CLL with either deletion 17P or a TP53 mutation. And in in that subpopulation, actually, the difference widened. So patients who were treated with xanabrutinib were about 77% progression-free, at 24 months compared to abrutinib, 55% progression-free. So although there's no difference at this point in terms of the overall survival, I think this was a very interesting difference in terms of the overall response rate and progression-free survival.
0: That's great. And and just looking in further depth at the progression-free survival results, can you comment on the absolute difference? And what would you determine as being clinically meaningful here?
1: So, you know, it's about a 12% absolute improvement at 24 months, which I, I think is in a range that's clinically meaningful for, for patients. You know, obviously, you're we, we going to need longer-term follow-up with the study to, to see if that difference is preserved. I, I think it likely will be uh, over time. And, uh, you know, I think particularly for the patients with deletion 17P, where you're seeing over a 20% absolute improvement in PFS at just two years, you know, that also is pretty compelling to me. If, if I were a patient, you know, trying to decide between these two drugs and I knew that one was going to work for longer... Particularly, I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss soon the safety advantages also of xanabrutinib. I, I think it clearly supports using xanabrutinib over ibrutinib for these patients.
0: Great. And uh, what are your thoughts on the difference in discontinuation rates that you observed?
1: Yeah, so you know, in this study, they observed fewer discontinuations with xanabrutinib compared to ibrutinib. I, I think that's a pretty good measure of sort of the general tolerability of the drug. And so in the xanabrutinib arm, about 15% of the patients discontinued compared to 22% with ibrutinib. There were also fewer patients on xanabrutinib who required dose reduction or dose interruption. So these are other signs of kind of the general tolerability. And again, I think this is, is helpful as we counsel our patients to, uh, to let them know that they can have a high likelihood of being able to stay on this effective drug.
0: That's great. And so looking into the adverse events further, what were the most notable differences?
1: So, you know, I would say in general, this is true of, uh, you know, all the uh, data that we have with these BTK inhibitors. There were more similarities than differences between these drugs. So when you look at things like infection, for example, uh, even in this study, hypertension was pretty similar between the two drugs. Diarrhea was maybe a little bit lower with xanabrutinib and maybe a little bit less in the way of arthralgia, but no major differences. Actually, neutropenia was a little bit higher with xanabrutinib here compared to ibrutinib. Where where I think the biggest difference was observed was going back to the beginning where I was saying, you know, our biggest concern is the cardiovascular AEs that we see with BTK inhibitors. And I do think in the Alpine study that xanabrutinib clearly had a more favorable cardiac profile compared to ibrutinib. You can see that in the terms of the overall rates of cardiac events. It was about close to 30% in the ibrutinib patients, 21% with xanabrutinib. And in terms of serious cardiac events, it was closer to 8% with ibrutinib versus 2% with xanabrutinib. And then when you start to look at the specific events that are most concerning from a cardiovascular perspective, things like ventricular arrhythmias, uh, heart failure, myocardial infarction, there were 14 such cases of more serious uh, events that led to treatment discontinuation on the abrutinib arm, and only one patient on the xanabrutinib arm who ended up stopping due to some ventricular extrasystoles. Also importantly, there were no fatal cardiac events on the xanabrutinib arm, whereas on the ibrutinib arm, there were six patients, about 2%, who had fatal cardiac events. So to me, that was a pretty striking difference. Certainly also see lower rates of atrial fibrillation uh, with xanabrutinib compared to ibrutinib. So to me, that was kind of the biggest difference between these drugs in this study from an AE perspective was around the cardiovascular issues.
0: And so how might these um, differences play out in clinical practice in terms of how you might monitor these yourself?
1: So, you know, CLL patients statistically are an older group. Uh, Most patients uh, on average are diagnosed in their late 60s, early 70s, might not need treatment right away. So many patients, by the time they need CLL treatment, already have some other cardiovascular comorbidities. Maybe they already have atrial fibrillation or uh, coronary artery disease. Maybe they're already on anticoagulation therapy. So, you know, as I'm sitting with a patient trying to decide between xanabrutinib and ibrutinib, I think the Alpine study is is very helpful in, in that determination. And I think for most patients, uh, xanabrutinib will make a lot of sense compared to ibrutinib. You know, there's still, you know, some people who are using ibrutinib because they're comfortable with it. They have a long experience with it. I don't think that's wrong. But I I think for most of us now with this number of patients with xanabrutinib and the length of follow-up that we have, we're feeling more comfortable using the newer drug, uh, given the clear improvement in cardiovascular safety and then the potential efficacy advantages that have been seen in this study.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, And in terms of looking further at other BTK inhibitors... Can you comment on the sort of safety profile of those and how they compare and how you make decisions in clinical practice around those?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the other player here that's now in clinical practice and has been for several years is acalabrutinib, which is also a selective BTK inhibitor. It's been approved in the U.S. since 2019 and in trials certainly long before that. So we have a lot of experience with acalabrutinib. It's also an excellent drug. You know, we're in a position now where we have two head-to-head studies. The other one, Elevate RR, compared acalabrutinib to ibrutinib directly in a high-risk CLL population in the relapse setting and also showed significant improvements in the safety profile of acalabrutinib compared to ibrutinib. It did not show an efficacy advantage, but it did show that acalabrutinib was not inferior to ibrutinib. So, you know, I think it's great to have these different options for patients. There are some nuances that are different between the AE profiles of acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. For example, we do tend to see headaches a little more commonly with acalabrutinib. So that's a situation where I might lean toward xanabrutinib. Uh, we have uh, a lower rate of hypertension with acalabrutinib compared to ibrutinib, whereas we did not see a difference there with xanabrutinib and ibrutinib in the Alpine study. So patient with hypertension, I might lean more toward acalabrutinib. So you know, I think having these different options is great for patients. It allows us to even more closely individualize our therapies. Uh, and I think both are great options for patients.
0: That's great. And how would you uh, monitor for these uh, safety concerns on a day-to-day basis in clinical practice?
1: So, you know, when I start patients on BTK inhibitors, I, I follow them a little more closely, especially in the first month or so. I'd see them back a week or two after starting and then you know a month out. And, and then if things are looking good, I start to space out the visits. Uh, I certainly rely on the patients to report to me if they're having any new toxicities uh, and then I'll, I'll see them. Uh, You If patients are doing well, I'll probably just be seeing them every three months or so. I'm always very careful to check the blood pressure at those visits because of the risk of hypertension. Um, Listen closely to the heart. I don't necessarily get an EKG at at every exam, but if I hear some irregular heartbeats, I certainly will get an EKG um, to see if patients are in atrial fibrillation. I always remind patients that they need to let us know if they're going to need any kind of elective procedures or surgeries so that we can advise as to how to hold the BTK inhibitors before and after the procedure to reduce the bleeding risk. And, you know, I just encourage them generally to, to monitor for any issues with excessive bruising or bleeding that could con- you know, contribute to the risk of more serious bleeding events. Um, but in general, I would say most patients tolerate these BTK inhibitors extremely well. Uh, and it allows these, these drugs to be given as, as long-term therapies in a very safe and effective way.
0: That's great. And would you monitor any differently depending on which BTK inhibitor you give, or do you just uh, monitor the same way regardless?
1: I think it's pretty similar uh, regardless, uh, you know, there, as I said earlier, you know, I think these drugs are more similar than they are different. Uh, mm-hmm. So the approach is very similar, I think, in managing the drugs. I would say you know, there's some differences around sort of how we do dose reduction. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a little more challenging with acalabrutinib because it's a drug that's given twice a day uh, and uh, it has a pretty short half life. So I, I try to avoid dose reducing acalabrutinib. If I need to, I'll give it hundred once a day for a period of time and try to get back to full dose. Uh, I think the nice thing about xanabrutinib is it does have a label either as a daily drug or a BID drug. And so uh, it's it's possible uh, to move xanabrutinib to a daily dosing and then dose reduce, and, and that can be effective as well. So good to have this type of flexibility with a different drug.
0: That's great. And so uh, I guess if you had a patient in front of you, what factors would you consider in terms of which BTK inhibitor to give when you're considering efficacy and safety and all logistical factors and so on?
1: Well, I mean, at this point for me, having two head-to-head studies showing the uh, you know, newer BTK inhibitors, the second generation so-called, are, are safer, um, I, I'm not using abrutinib too much these days. Uh, so it's typically a choice between acalabrutinib and, and xanabrutinib. You know, I weigh some of the pros and cons of those different factors I, I mentioned, like headaches or hypertension, those sorts of things, that, whether it's a patient who may be a little forgetful and, and uh, can't stick with the, the BID dosing, that might be a patient I prioritize for xanabrutinib. Uh, we used to have to worry about proton pump inhibitor drug interactions with acalabrutinib, but fortunately, that's no longer the case. There's now an acalabrutinib tablet, so the drug can be given safely uh, with a proton pump inhibitor. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, a bit of a toss-up right now. I, I think that uh, there is a little more long-term experience with acalabrutinib, more patients treated, and, uh, and I have more personal experience with the drug. So that's, that's his- sort of historically been the one I've used most commonly, but certainly very excited about having xanabrutinib as an option uh, moving forward.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Davis. That's a really insightful uh, discussion and I think will be really interesting to our listeners. So thank you very much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much.